Welcome to the Money and Time Machine podcast, where you can learn how to rage against the theft of your financial future by listening to a unique perspective on what's holding you back from a life of more money and more time. Hello and welcome back to episode 27 of the Money and Time Machine podcast. I'm your host, Justin Paul, and today we are continuing on from where we left off in episode 26. I am discussing with one of Australia's leading money minds in the form of serial entrepreneur Paul Council, an interrogation of sorts, the teasing apart and exploring around what we are calling counterintuitive pivots. This being counterintuitive pivot number one, which is everything you know about money is wrong. If you were right, you'd be rich. Welcome back, Paul. It's a pleasure to be here. So just uh, I'll do a quick recap on uh, question uh, three that uh, we ended off the um, last uh, episode, which was, you know, part of any journey is the learning component of what constitutes the technical and psychological foundations. And I mentioned that many of us, uh, you know, have this uh, very distinct, voracious appetite for content. And once we've, uh, you know, had our fill, we're often left with that rather empty feeling of, you know, what's next? Where do we go to now? So it's as if there was a piece of the puzzle that was missing. And you went in part to explain that uh, phenomenon. And you talked about the um, master apprentice relationship. You talked about uh, having a supportive environment. You talked about the learning, the study, the application of that new information through episodic or experiential processes, so that you're not caught up in this trap of knowledge or information acquisition for the sake of information acquisition. And you alluded to some psychological underpinnings or Topics like affluenza, the philosophy of futility and the consumption code that dupes you into the idea of happy, easy now, instead of really understanding the foundations of why our consumption psychology overrides our best intentions to do better and achieve more. But that in that is a process that without understanding and study will just keep you, you know, in that same place of doing what you've always done. And so we went into question four, which was, you know, it's an, it's an important question posed in pretty much the, the sentiment of the counterintuitive pivot, which was, you know, if everything you believe about money is right, then surely you'd be rich, wouldn't you? So my question is this, is our ability to justify our experiences, our ability to give meaning to our results part of the delusion that things will just get better or are we just blinded to our own results? Um, perhaps I can coin that in a better question. Is there something in our makeup that makes us struggle for longer than we should? Uh, that's, a, <clears throat> that's a really interesting question. Um, is there something in our makeup? Um, you know, we'd have to really question, uh, you know, what our makeup is and, and, and how do we how do we get to this, um, you, you know, how, how is this stuff that's us literally made up? You know, what's the process of this stuff that comes together that um, has its expression in the results that people are, you know, experiencing? And there was a, a philosopher, um, you know, way back in the early 1900s called um, P.D. Uspensky, and he, he talked about the free ride concept. 
And he talks about the, the notion of, look, by and large, you don't actually have to do anything um, in order to get to this experience that people are experiencing. All you've got to do is, is follow, you know, the instructions of society. And basically, you don't really have to do anything, um, you know, over and above your ability to go to school, your ability to learn what you're given to learn, and then your ability to... Uh, convert that learning into the exchange of your time and labor. And he says, now, look, you know, once society has trained you up into that level, you don't, it, it's not interested in you, like, furthering you. It's not interested in you furthering your potential. So it's not necessarily, it's not necessarily that we're blind to our own results. It's just that we don't really know, or, or most people don't know how to think about the results in ways other than the way that they think about their results. And so you've just got to think about, you know, most people who um, um, purport to learning, they're not necessarily active participants in their own learning. They're kind of sort of more um, passive recipients of data, you know, they might go to courses, but they don't do anything about the information. They might buy stuff online, they buy programs, but it goes into some file never to be read or never to be acted <laughs> upon, you know. Um, and so there's little information that develops an ability to question their own results. It, even though they can feel the difficulty and they can feel the, you know, the frustration or the despair or anything, there's, there's no ability or generally no ability to actually get past that point simply because of, you know, Uspensky's notion of the free ride. Well, see, you know, society's developed you as much as the society wants to develop you, and this is the result. It's, it's, you know, pretty clear. And in order for you to experience what you can't yet experience, it's your responsibility to develop you. And the other thing that most people don't move in, like they don't move in social circles or professional circles that encourage different ways to think about, um, you know, things like money, um, everyday set of circumstances. So, you know, most people move in, in sort of circles that are very belief driven and, you know, a very belief and opinion uh, driven and you know they either buy into the belief or they buy into the opinion or they've got their own strong beliefs and their own strong opinions but they don't necessarily bring about um, change and that's a recipe that always leads back to sameness and you know pretty much that's what a rut is you know rut is just a series of samenesses like you know a rut is a well-more path that just gets deeper and deeper every time you actually walk it you know, you could say a, a rut is a, a well-worn path that gets deeper and deeper every day you live it. Yes. And so, you know, if you think about change, I mean, change is available. I mean, and, and change is everybody's birthright too. But unless people start reaching out to um, people that can help them bring about change, unless people start reaching out to change makers, unless you reach out to people who can help you decode you in a way that brings new experiences, in a way that brings new meaning, in a way that brings new insight to you, then 
pretty much the ruts are going to remain in place. So it's not necessarily that we're blind to our resources, we just don't know how to, um, you know, bring about change and access those different meanings and insights and um, experiences that can be gained. No, thanks for that, Paul. I, 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 uh, I think, uh, if anything, that lays down a very nice foundation that the, the potential uh, lies within us. We just need to, uh, you know, perhaps go back over that explanation there because I think that is something that um, uh, very few people understand and it's definitely not articulated uh, in any of the conversations I've had in my 40-plus years other than with you. So thank you very much for that. Now, I know from my, my personal experience, and, and I'm sure a great many people can uh, relate to this, that wanting to move in a direction uh, to which you've, uh, you know, f- from which you've become accustomed to, um, is easier said than done. You know, everybody tells you, I want this or I desire for that. And you've noted, and I'll quote you in one of your um, references in uh, your book, uh, in any process of change, it takes courage to leave the familiar and travel towards the unknown, uh, quote ended. And, you know, that process, I guess, is made even more challenging with the turbulent times that we're experiencing now where most people have gone into survival mode. (laughs) So notwithstanding those who have inherited their wealth, most journeys start with a strong desire to change their uh, their present circumstances. And a question I've heard you ask many times is this is, if you do not change now, how are you ever going to change or give your life meaning beyond your capacity to labor. And I came across a nice quote by uh, Nassim Taleb, um, who, interestingly enough, is is a risk engineer. So all of this uh, uh, episode is based on your uh, um, uh, podcast interview on risk. And uh, he says, you will never fully convince someone that he is wrong. Only reality can. So what, in your observation, is the major overriding factor that prompts most people uh, to want to change or at least consider making changes to their financial and economic circumstances, especially when they realize that nothing's working? Oh, look, I think that um, the number one motivator for pain effort, most people, is pain. Yes. Um, and, and it's really interesting that, um, you know, pain is such a slippery word. Um, if you think about pain and difficulty and crisis and circumstances and, you know, all of those sorts of things. But you think about, you know, uncomfortableness. And then you think about... Uh, you know, a pain threshold. And, like, you know, there's there's almost this sort of hero status about somebody that can, um, you know, tolerate a lot of pain. (laughs) Yes, true. (laughs) And and it's, you know, if pain is a motivator, it's not a motivator until you actually reach your pain threshold. And, you know, we've all seen those sort of movies where somebody is being interrogated and, and they hold out and they hold out and they hold out and they hold out and they, and they can absorb enormous amounts of uh, pain and, and some people never, you know, crack. But, you know, the moment somebody reaches their pain threshold, they crack. But that's the moment of action. So, you know, you can think about uh, people who have endured um you know, difficult circumstances for years and years and years and years, and suddenly they reach their pain threshold and they decide, look, that's it, you know, enough's enough and I'm going to do something about it. And then that's the stage of action. And then they look back and say, gee, that wasn't as hard as what I thought it was going to be, you know. (laughs) Why didn't I do this years and years and years ago um, sort of experience? And, and the point is that they didn't do it years and years and years ago because they didn't reach their pain threshold. 
Yeah. So, um, you, you know, most, I mean, it really is only two motivators, isn't there? It's pain and pleasure. Yes. Now, most people's primary motivator is pain, but there's not enough of it. And so they have this sort of comfortable numbness of, um, you know, difficult circumstances and difficult, you know, relationships with all sorts of things, you know, relationships with people, relationships with work, relationships with money, relationship with debtors, all of those sorts of things. But again, they don't hit their pain threshold because somehow, you know, the social perception is, well, you just got to tough it out, you know. Yes. Um, well, I just want to encourage people that you don't have to tough it out. <laughs> and I want to encourage people to, you know, not to use pleasure as a way of distraction from pain because pleasure, um, you know, can also be a primary motivator. But we know that most people have a primary motivator of pain um, because it takes a long time to, to bring about change, if at all. But somebody who has a primary motivator of pleasure, they are really, they are very easy to change. Oh, look, this this is not working out. You know, this this is not good. This is not healthy. This is not a safe environment. Fine, I'm out of here. So when you're when your primary motivator is pleasure, change happens very very quickly. When your primary motivator is pain, it takes a long 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 time to hit the pain threshold. And so, if you know, people are pain motivated, then fine, lower the threshold or, in fact, increase the pain so that you get up to your threshold, you know, more quickly than you otherwise would be. So basically, they're the two, you know, motivators. But, you know, people can also, um, and again, it sort of takes pleasure to be able to do it, but, you know, people can be motivated by um, the idea that, you can actually choose a new future. You can choose learning, for example. You can um, you can change simply by becoming, um, you know, developing more inquiry, more insight, um, you know, passion, curiosity. They can all bring about change, but not if your primary motivator is pain. Um, you know, so if, yeah. you, if you get the idea of, well, you know, if it's a, if your primary motivator is pain, then fine, you know, get the thumb screws on you and just twist them a little bit until you actually hit that threshold. And, and as soon as you hit that threshold, the journey after that is easy peasy, you know, 10 times easier it, it has, as it is prior to hitting that threshold. Now, that makes sense, Paul. It, it reminds me of, uh, uh, I think there's a book titled, Who Would You Be If, uh, you know, if, uh, or something to that effect, if you didn't buy into your story or you let go of your story. And, uh, you know, because a lot of people have stories around pain and, uh, and uh, you know, they kind of identify with that. But uh, no, well, well explained and uh, very well said. So thank you very much for that. Uh, well, you know, we've got uh, question six, so the the last of the of the questions there, and uh, I, I don't have to ask too many questions of you, Paul, because you have a, a beautiful way. You, you you're kind of like the chef that can make a great meal just from a handful of ingredients. So I've always appreciated that about you, and um, and I'll quote you. Um, What's starting this question? You say most people fail to seek solutions to the causes of why things turn out the way they do. Uh, you know, despite wanting wealth, most people never make wealth a big enough must 
in their lives. And I know from my own experience that making that shift from conventional thinking to my desired outcome outcome of, you know, for more money and more time was uh, akin to driving a car with the handbrakes on mostly, you know, and a very frustrating uh, process. And I can obviously look back and laugh. So they call it the hero's journey because you have to deal with the emotions of moving from familiarity to uncertainty, you know, where you are not going to feel comfortable in unfamiliar territory where old constructs and the perception of accurate predictions begin to fall apart. So for a long, long time, I couldn't articulate that sense of feeling like a fraud, feeling lost, feeling misplaced, uh, you know, as if I didn't belong. Uh, and I just sort of mired in this uh, world of unhappiness, despite appearances to the contrary. So were it not for inserting myself in a fertile and supportive environment, I'm not sure. I, in fact, I doubt very much that I would have stayed the path and I'd probably still be playing the role. And I'm reminded of a, sto- a story because it was only this morning I was up early. I've been up for a few hours and I saw a post from um, a, one of your mentees. And I remember her, Paul. It was at UWA. Um, you had done a series of uh, intro nights as you typically do. And uh, it was a weekend uh, uh, at UWA. You'd, you'd hide out the hall there, about you know 50 people or so. And this particular lady comes walking up to you and she shook your hand and she was almost, you know, she was, um, it was a sense of, uh, I, 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 I think she was so grateful and she shook your hand and she was almost quivering. I thought she was going to cry and she kept thanking you and, uh, you know, uh, and I think she mentioned something that, you know, she just never heard anyone articulate the things that you talk about. And um, I'm not going to mention her name, but I will, and you'll know who she is. Um, So it's been probably a good decade now. So she has co-authored a book with none other than uh, the personal development pioneer, Brian Tracy. She started out in the HR department working for Mines, and now she now owns an international renowned business uh, that turns over, and I know this from reliable sources, well over a million dollars a year. You know, um, and I know for a fact that she credits you for uh, a lot of what she, she she's learned. So um, I, I want you, if it's possible, to 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 you know leave our listeners because a lot of this counterintuitive pivots here are going to shake you. They are gonna, you know it's designed to uh, have you think about things that might not necessarily be be comfortable. So while they may be feeling a little bit. Um, um, what's the word uh, you sort of, uh, you know, uh, Unbalanced. Well, they might be feeling. They might even be feeling a bit threatened, uh, given that they've hung on to these uh, ideas and biases and thoughts and beliefs. And now there's a possibility that you know what they know might be wrong. So it's all part of the process. So that feeling is perfectly natural. So can you leave them with some parting thoughts that could help stabilize them? You know, uh, embrace them and give them some context as we take them through this journey that involves numerous counterintuitive pivots. Pivots. Sorry, which are just ideas we've hung on to very strongly, but we're now discovering they may not actually be, be accurate. So can you give them perspective and more importantly, another point of view to consider? Gee, a tall order. <laughs> um, <laughs> and yes, it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful story that you just um, relayed. And, and I remember that, um, I remember that moment as so it was. I'm glad um, you did because I, 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 I said, <laughs> mm. yes, no, she's certainly doing well, isn't she? Um, I think I'd just like to take people back to the idea of risk and the definition of risk. And, and like, you know, there are many technical definitions of risk. And, and when I read them all and when I understood them, it, it, they didn't mean anything to me. I couldn't sort of integrate them into, like, you know, um, you know, my sort of mental capacity. 
And so I had to redefine risk or I had to define what risk actually meant for me. And so I came up with the idea that in any given context, risk is my ability to make ineffective choices and or decisions. So in any given context, risk is the ability or the probabilities of making ineffective choices. Now, when we come to things like money and, you know, the current set of circumstances, you've just got to think about, um, you know, the level of risk. People's ability or probabilities of making ineffective choices is actually quite high. And, and we know it's high because of the results that they get. And so we've got to lower the probabilities of making ineffective choices. And there's really only one way you can do that is by getting access to new information, getting access to new data, getting access to uh, new environments. And the more that you um, assimilate new data or new information and the more that you start to behave that into a skill set, the more you actually lower your level of risk in any given context. And, you know, we can refer to people like Einstein who said that, um, you know, you can't, solve a problem at the same level of thinking that created the problem. Yes. So you can't solve your money issues at the same level of thinking and or behavior that is actually creating the money issues. And so again, how do we, we've got to change our level of thinking. We've got to change, we've got to get access to something new that, you know, people are not getting access to. And we can also refer to people like Charles Darwin, who said that, look, it's it's not the strongest of the species that survives, nor is it the most intelligent that survives. What survives is the most adaptable to change. And so that's what we have to... Um, you know, how we have to think about our current set of circumstances is, is adaptability, how flexible, how adaptable. And if you're hanging on to beliefs, and, and of course, you know, people's beliefs aren't wrong. They're just beliefs. Yes. So we can't make them wrong, but we can question whether or not they allow or foster or feed adaptability or whether they foster intringency, you know, sort of this fortification hanging on to this belief. So I really want to encourage people to think that, you know, in the future, you need to be able to make better decisions. I mean, that's a given. And to be able to make better decisions, then you've got to, you've got to get access to more knowledge stuff. You've got to get access to um, being able to decode things at a different level. You've got, to, you've got to get access to stuff that you know that is different from the stuff that you're using today. And we've got to sort of pursue a process of the repeated application of new knowledge over and over and over until it actually becomes a new skill. And if you don't do that, then you're just going to fall back into old habits. And if you fall back into old habits, you're just going to unconsciously follow memes, you know, the memes that are... Um, socially uh, engineered into society. And if you just follow memes, then you're going to not exercise the ability to construct new meaning out of data. You, you're going to have the same stuff going on rather than new insight. 
And you know, everybody has the ability to construct new meaning out of data. But the important thing to understand is that you can only construct meaning equal to what it is that you know and understand at present. Yes. And so, you know, the future is about becoming more learned. It's about pursuing information. It's about becoming hungry for knowledge. It's about a willingness to deal with, you know, difficult to understand concepts. It's, it's about a keenness to advance your understanding of money and how that is engineered and move away from the exchange in time and labor. And again, that's a skill-based thing. It takes time. It takes application. It takes support. It takes encouragement. It takes, you know, um, moving down a, a pathway that is different to the rut. Now, each layer of insight that you get, each layer of understanding will allow you to construct meanings to, you know, the current set of informations and to the extent to which you become a, a pursuer of higher learning, the extent to which you start to understand meanings that allow you to expand is the extent that your current set of circumstances and conditions will change and evolve. And so, you know, I really want to encourage people you know, reach out to those people that can support you. No, thank you very much, Paul. And that concludes uh, your thoughts and your thinking and articulating your, uh, you know, hopefully what we can take away in terms of understanding around the idea or of the counterintuitive pivot number one, which is everything you know about money is wrong. If you were right, you'd be rich. I would urge you to go back to rehash episode 26 and bring that conversation to join into this episode and try at least to consider the point that your psychological foundations won't allow you to pursue wealth and financial and economic freedom beyond what you have been psychologically conditioned to accept as, let's say, traditional. If you are not prepared to question your own thinking, some of your own beliefs and understandings, then you can't critically analyze new information in a way that allows you to choose and adopt a best-fit scenario because you're inclined to stay with what's familiar, your familiar beliefs, which can only offer you familiar experiences and familiar results, no matter how much new information might come your way. Because your critical faculty, which is something that Paul has discussed in his earlier episodes of the Money and Time Machine podcast, is liable to block out information that doesn't fit in with your worldview. And you're left wondering why learning new stuff, quote unquote, doesn't necessarily equate to experiencing new results. In next week's counterintuitive pivot number two, we touch on another crucial and sensitive counterintuitive pivot, which is... You're conditioned for financial servitude, not freedom. So till next we speak, Paul and I are looking forward to exploring some of these challenging ideas that may help you break free from your quote-unquote suckness and help you on your way to personal and economic freedom. So till then, please take care. Thanks for listening to the Money and Time Machine podcast. And remember, you're either someone else's version of a money and time machine, or you can learn how to become your very own effective money and time machine and to live with purpose on purpose. <laughs>